Well, we're going to uh, read uh, Psalm 8 together now. The Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory in the heavens. Through the praise of children and infants, you have established a stronghold against your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is mankind that you are mindful of them, human beings that you care for them? You have made them a little lower than the angels and crowned them with glory and honour. You made them rulers over the works of your hands. You put everything under their feet, all flocks and herds and the animals of the wild, the birds in the sky and the fish in the sea, all that swim the paths of the seas. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Well, good morning. For those uh, who don't know me, my name's Ella Saxon. I uh, normally attend the 9am service, but it's good to uh, be here at 11am, see some old faces and some not-so-old people. <laughs> Might get hit afterwards by a few people after saying that. Um, it's a privilege to be here and preach God's word to the congregation, and it's a privilege for everyone to be able to open God's word and, uh, and read it and peruse it and uh, it's something many of our brothers and sisters in Christ haven't got the opportunity to do in freedom over the rest of the world. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Have you ever been in awe of something, overcome, overwhelmed, perhaps speechless by the size, the beauty, the grandeur, the magnificence of it? Maybe a sunset, a sunrise, a scene you've seen while travelling, your children being born. I'm sure you could think of others. I have the privilege of driving through the Adelaide Hills every day on my way to work. And some days you just think, this is the day that the Lord has made. And you start praising God and the, the, the adrenaline starts to flow. The only trouble is you look down at your speedo and you're doing 120 before you realise what's going on. Not to do with God's uh, creation, but I remember when my son was only a little two or three years old and we were in Adelaide a couple of weeks before Christmas and we were approaching the old David Jones building. I don't know, those that remember it will remember all the marble and the beauty of it. And Christmas time was a wonderful time with all the decorations up there. And as I carried him through the door, he just went, wow. All these situations evoke a response, don't they? Psalm 8 records the response of David to what he has seen. It introduces us to the, the, experience of, the first experience of joyful praise and adoration in the Psalter. And it's part of our Questions of Life series. And this morning we'll be examining it in four sections, which are marked on your, mark, on your handout. Firstly, in verses 1 to 2, there is praise of the majestic power and protection of God, or Yahweh, the personal name of God, the God we've just sung praises to in our, in our previous song. And we see that displayed in creation. 
Secondly, in verses 3 to 4, there is a recognition of human frailty in the light of God's creative power. And thirdly, the astonished acceptance of divine empowerment of humans and their resultant responsibility. And lastly, you'll see the the fourth point is titled, Where is Jesus? So where is Jesus in all this? Is he to be found at all? After all, the psalm was written a thousand years before Jesus ever walked the earth. Well, before we begin, please let me pray. Heavenly Father, as we open your word today, open our eyes and hearts as well, so that we may be able to see you more clearly, that we might, be grow, that we might grow in maturity in Christ. We pray also that we might uh, come to understand fully the relationship we have with you. Amen. Now, in verse 1 of Psalm 8, we hear of David's response to his gazing at the heavens. It's not of one of fear, but of adoration and amazement. It's a wow moment for David. And David, having been a shepherd most of his young life, keeping his flocks by night, to use a biblical term, would, I imagine, have stared awestruck at the night sky on countless occasions, leading him to express his profound thoughts in the psalm. Lord, O Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory in the heavens. It's a recognition of the majesty of God's name and nature, which his works, his craftsmanship, reveal in both heaven and earth. David's psalm seems to grow from this awesome observation of the night sky, and he acknowledges God, the same God whose glory fills the earth, the same God who is our God. He is bound himself in covenant to us, despite our sin. The introductory Lord, it it doesn't show up on your handouts, but the the first word Lord should be capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. Yahweh, our sovereign ruler. The common thread in verse 1 appears to be one of impressive, almost intimidating power, a power that is visible, on display for all to see. And why has God set his majesty and glory in the heavens? God is revealed in the heavens. We see his willingness to be seen. As we look at Romans 1.20, that says, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen being understood from what has been made. is to reveal a God whose glory is greater than the heavens themselves. If they're awesome, how much more awesome is he? This is not the hidden God of the laments, but the God who displays himself to be seen in his creation, the God who wills to be known in his majesty by human beings and creation alike. From the reading, you might pick up that the opening phrase, how majestic is your name in all the earth, is parallel to the following phrase, you have set your glory in the heavens. Earth and heavens mark out 
earth, earth and heaven mark out the two extremes of all that God has created and declare all to be permeated with the majestic name of Yahweh. God has set his glory in the heavens. It's a deliberate act, ordered, not random, and he arranged it. It reveals a God who is profoundly great and powerful. And it puts paid to the idea that this is all random and the product of impersonal forces. It points to the creation by the one God, an all-powerful God. I was reminded as I was writing this sermon of the story of Sherlock Holmes and Watson going on a camping trip. And after a great meal and a bottle of red, they lay down for the night and went to sleep. And some hours later, Holmes woke up, nudged his faithful friend and said, Watson, I want you to look up at the night sky and tell me what you see. And Watson said, I see millions and millions of stars. And Sherlock said, and what does that tell you? Well, after a minute or two of pondering, Watson said, astronomically... It tells me that there's millions of galaxies and potentially billions of planets. Astrologically, I observe that Satan, I said that this morning, Satan, (laughs) Saturn is in Leo. (laughs) That's better. Chronologically, I deduce that it's about quarter past three in the morning. And theologically, I can see that God is all-powerful and we're small and insignificant. What does it tell you? Holmes was silent for about 30 seconds. Then he said, Watson, you idiot. It tells me someone's stolen our tent. (laughs) Do we look at the heavens and have the same awe-filled response that David had? Do we see God's majesty and power displayed? Is God revealed to us? Or has someone stolen our tent? Do we stop at creation and deny the creator? Many people are blind to God's majesty and power displayed in his creation. But he has placed it there for all to see. If we listen to the words of Romans 1, 18 to 20, it says these words, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. This leads us on to verse 2. Through the praise of your children and infants, you have established a stronghold against your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. We've seen that God has created the heavens and the earth. Why did he do this? So that he might receive praise from his creatures. Hear the words of the 24 elders in Revelation 4.11 as they lay their crowns before the throne. 
They cry out, you are worthy, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honour and power, for you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. Even the inanimate praise him. You might remember Jesus' triumphant entry into Jerusalem when the Pharisees were calling on Jesus to rebuke his disciples because they were praising God. And he replies, I tell you, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. And from the great list of Psalm 148, we read that the sun and the moon, the shining stars, the lightning, hail, snow and clouds, to name a few, all praise him. And what is the purpose of their praise? It's a bastion against the forces of evil, against the enemies of God. The enemies of God, blinded by their proud rebellion, have denied the the creator in their lives and cannot see his work in creation. They're confounded by the praise of children and infants. They can't understand it. In Matthew 21.16, when the chief priests and the, and the teachers of the law saw all the wonderful things that Jesus did and the children shouting in the, in the temple courts, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. Do you hear what the children are saying, they asked him? Yes, replied Jesus. Have you never read from the lips of children and infants? You, Lord, have called forth your praise. A direct reference to our psalm today. The rising discord of enemies, foes, avengers, presents a challenge which God meets head on with what is weak in this world. What appears immaterial, immature, vulnerable, dependent. It's a dramatic contrast. The perceived power of those who oppose God compared to the babbling praise echoing from the cradle and nursery. God is still glorified in the simple faith of children and in the childlike humility of Christian believers. It prompts the questions. Do we praise God enough? Do we realise the power of praise, the importance of it? Let us resolve not to reserve our praise for God just to hear on Sundays, but let it be on our lips every waking moment. We heard last week Jeff encourages us to write our own songs of praise, something I haven't done yet, but I intend to do it. Now David continues his awestruck musings prompted by the consideration of the night sky in verses 3 and 4, part 2 in the handouts. When I consider your heavens, he says, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is mankind that you are mindful of them, human beings that you care for them? The vastness, the expanse, the myriad of lights, the clockwork precision with which the moon and the stars turn and return again and again to mark out the days, the months and the years, all have a mind-boggling effect on David. He recognises that all this wondrous display is the creative work of Yahweh, 
the work of his fingers. It's Yahweh's heaven that David stands under. And David not only acknowledges the creator, but converses with him. God shows us in verse 3 that the right inference from his ordered heavens is not his remoteness, but his eye for detail. He hasn't planned a meaningless and empty, empty universe, but a home for his family, a home for you and me. Praise be to God. Listen to the words of Isaiah 45:18. He did not create it to be empty, but formed it to be inhabited. Praise God. If these verses reflect David's reaction some 3,000 years ago, how much more should it be ours who live in these days of astrophysics and the exploration of space? David finally comes down to earth, drawn to reflect on the significance of earthbound humans in verse 4, and he asks the sobering question. That might be David now. Someone get that. What is David that you are mindful of them, human beings that you care for them? Human beings, minuscule specks of dust on a a rock revolving around one of thousands of stars in but one of hundreds of galaxies flung across the universe. Compared to even the small part of the universe that David can see, humanity seems so insignificant in size, glory and durability. Creation does make you feel small. And yet, to David's astonishment, God is mindful of them and he cares for them. We can ask the same question of God. Who am I that you are mindful of me? Who am I that you care for me? The Hebrew word mindful means remembering, calling to mind. And care means to seek out, long for, take care of. It's though God in his calling to mind of his human creatures sparks such a longing for them that he must seek them out and lavish care on them. The two words imply action as well as his concern. Commentaries suggest that the particular Hebrew term used here for humanity describes weakness, frailty and mortality. It intentionally intentionally stresses the distance, the gap David experiences opening up between the God the Creator and his far less significant, less powerful human creatures. It drives home the frailty and limitation of humans compared to the awesome universal power of Yahweh displayed across the heavens. And yet, God is still mindful of humans, still mindful of us, and has the will, purpose, and incredible gifting for their lives, for our lives. How exhilarating, how comforting, what blessing. Surely it causes us too to burst out in praise. God modelled us on himself. We're made in his image. And he gave us a spiritual nature. It's what sets us apart from all his other creatures. 
and rebukes those who would say humanity is no different from any other part of creation. As we read on in verses 5 to 6, speaking of mankind, it says, and this is part 3 in your handout, you have made them a little lower than the angels and crowned them with glory and honour. You made them rulers over the works of your hands. You put everything under their feet. Now, the NIV doesn't translate this quite properly. Uh, The ESV, for example, uh, as do some other translations, use the singular term him instead of them. But while the reading is true of all people, male and female, it finds fulfilment, as we shall see later, in just one man. What words of wonderful blessing they are. David has moved from the littleness, the insignificance of a human being, to the greatness God has bestowed upon them on the earth. He has invested us with stupendous worth and responsibility, Responsibility to extend God's dominion and protective care over the rest of creation. We've been catapulted far beyond our seeming weakness and insignificance to the highest possible honour bestowed on an earthly creature. And why, may we ask? Because of the action of God's free divine choice and grace exercised in the creation of us not by any choice or value or effort on our behalf, but by God's grace. And ultimately, Psalm 8 is not so much about divine power or even human insignificance. It's much more about divine grace, empowerment and resultant human responsibility that I've mentioned already. Let's look more closely at the greatness of human beings. The four blessings mentioned in verses 5 and 6 highlight the divine grace implicit in them. Firstly, you have made them a little lower than the angels. God has bestowed the highest possible honour on us, making us a little lower than the heavenly beings in status, a position of distinct honour. Alone created in the image of God, temporary lower than the angels, because we are sinful and they are holy. But ultimately, angels and redeemed people will unite in their praise of God. Secondly, God has crowned mankind with glory and honour, invested us with royal sovereignty. Now, in ancient Israel, crowns decorated with flowers were worn at banquets as a sign of honour and elevation. And perhaps David envisions this as he writes. And glory and honour are two characteristics of God himself and now we see them adorn weak and frail humans, allowing his power to be displayed through those creatures in which he has graciously chosen to extend his authority throughout the world. Thirdly and fourthly, you made them rulers over the works of your hands. You put everything under their feet. The role of responsibility and authority over the earth is given only to humans. It again distinguishes them 
distinguishes us from the rest of creation. And the words pick up on the creation story of Genesis 1, 26 and 28, if you're taking notes. It really should cause us to stand in awe at the unexpected grace, the undeserved grace that has elevated us to those heights of glory, honour and responsibility. In sharing God's image, we're also called to share in his loving care for all he has made. This perspective must or can and must change how we look at the world. It can't help not to. What a blessing. It emphasises mankind's essential unity with the creator from whom the responsibility and authority derives. He places the, the earth under human authority. It's not done by human power, but by the grace of God. Now, one symbolic act in the ancient Near East to indicate superiority over a defeated enemy was for the king to place his foot on the neck of an enemy who was lying prostrate at his feet. This act of humiliation of the enemy and exaltation of the king graphically displayed who was in control and who was not. And while not as dramatic... God has put everything under mankind's feet, under their control. And they're listed, as you'll see in verses 7 and 8, all flocks and herds and the animals of the wild and birds of the sky and the fish of the sea, all that swim swim the paths of the sea. It's all inclusive. Now, it sounds wonderful, doesn't it? God's blessing of mankind like that, pouring out his grace upon them. No wonder David repeats the praise of verse 1, bookending the psalm with the words, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And I imagine, considering David's considerations, contemplations and musings, this second verse of praise may have been said with extra gusto and enthusiasm. I said it sounded wonderful, but is that what we see, what we experience in reality? Listen to a comment on the psalm in Hebrews 2.8. In putting everything under them, God left nothing that is not subject to them. Yet, at present we do not see everything subject to them. It sounds like a bit of a conundrum, doesn't it? The answer lies in the fact that humanity has sinned and fallen, consequently losing some of the dominion God has given us. It's been interrupted. We don't see it at its fullest. I ask the question at point four, what about Jesus? Well, despite not seeing everything subject to us, reading on in Hebrews 2.9, we hear these words. But we do see Jesus, who was made lower than the angels for a little while, now crowned with glory and honour, because he suffered death so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, 
was made a little lower status than the angels for a brief time when he walked the earth as a human being before being exalted back to heaven. Suffering humiliation, ridicule, death before being raised to glorification and crowned with glory and honour. We see Jesus' authority displayed in the Gospels. Not only his power, but the different facets of his power when he exercises it over nature, evil, death and sin. But we have yet to see the full authority of his power, full impact of his authority rather. There is a tension between the now and the not yet, between what is present reality and that which will be fully actualised at the end of the age. Then we will see the full impact of Christ's rule and we'll share in it. Praise God. Christ's reigning as the second Adam will be fully realised in the new creation, fully revealed in the new creation when he comes again in power and glory. We've read this morning of God's care in action, his blessings in creation. How much more has he, how much more will he bless us in Christ? The blessings in creation pale into insignificance to the blessings we have in him, will have in him. The forgiveness of sins because he tasted death for everyone. The restoration of humanity to its proper place in creation. And we have the promise of eternal life. And when will all this happen? When will it all be fulfilled? Well, Paul the Apostle, looking forward in 1 Corinthians 25, 27, and speaking of Jesus, writes this, For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, for he has put everything under his feet, Christ's feet, the sinless one the perfect Lamb of God. What is mankind that you are mindful of them? Human beings that you care for them? Do we need to look any further than Christ? To him whom God, our God, out of his love, out of his care for us, sent him to die for us. Amen. Let me finish in prayer. How we sing your praises, Lord. Thank you for caring for us, for loving us, for saving us. May we be ever mindful of these things and may they cause us to walk in your ways for the rest of our days. Amen.